Just so you'll know, I'm getting to the pulpit a little bit earlier today because I have to go catch a flight out of Atlanta uh, and uh, for a very, very special meeting. And I would appreciate uh, your prayers. This is what's called the LAPCO meeting. It's an annual meeting that uh, brings together uh, all the key leaders uh, in the nation that serve pregnancy center ministries. It's a very... Uh, small, tight-knit group of about uh, 25 leaders, folks like Focus on the Family, Heartbeat, CareNet, NIFLA, ICU Mobile, we could go on and on, uh, but it's just the key leaders, and uh, we'll begin tonight, and then I'll have the opportunity all day tomorrow uh, to lead them in time of study of God's Word and prayer, uh, that the first day is always devoted solely to prayer and God's Word. And then the second day is more of a business meeting where we look at ways of how we can cooperate uh, with one another better, uh, looking at what the other side is doing and how we can sort of circumvent their attacks and continue to go forward uh, with this wonderful ministry to see little ones saved from the slaughter of abortion, uh, to have the opportunity to discover their God-given destiny, and in the process, of course, uh, to keep the gospel central to everything we are and do. Uh, that many might come to know uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, I would appreciate uh, your prayers uh, for that uh, meeting that God would bless and uh, strengthen these uh, very special leaders in a, in a very, very extraordinary, uh, extraordinary way. So uh, when I conclude the message, I'll share the invitation. Uh, and then after the invitation, James will come up uh, to share the announcements and give me an opportunity to quickly escape so I can uh, get to Atlanta in time. Uh, we continue our study of a special group of Psalms. Uh, Psalm 120 through 134, which are designated in the Bible as the Psalms of the Degrees. Uh, we believe uh, King Hezekiah compiled these 15 psalms to commemorate the miracle of the degrees that God performed as a sign that he would heal King Hezekiah of a terminal disease, add 15 years to his life, and then deliver the city of Jerusalem from the Assyrian invasion. I've entitled the series Celebrating Triumph Through Trust or, or Celebrating Triumph Over Trouble uh, Through Trust in God. And today we come to Psalm 124. So please follow along in your sermon notes as we uh, read the psalm. And notice that the title I've given to the psalm is taken from a New Testament verse which echoes the central truth of Psalm 124, and the New Testament verse is Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Because that is the heart of this particular psalm. Verse 1, had it not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, had it not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us, then... If he had not been on our side, then we would have uh, been swallowed up alive when their anger was kindled up against us. 
Uh, then the waters would have engulfed us. The stream would have swept over our soul. Then the raging waters would have swept over our soul. Blessed be the Lord who has uh, not given us to be torn by their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the trapper. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. You know, at a very, very frustrating point in the Old Testament patriarch Jacob's life, uh, he made this complaint, and, and this is direct quote from the Scripture. He said, everything is against me. I mean, have you ever been there? Have you ever felt that way? Just everything right now is against me. Well, that statement does capture the backdrop to Psalm 124, except the psalm is talking very specifically about the nation of Israel, which we see there clearly in verse 1. At the end of verse 2, notice we read, when men rose up against us, referring again when men rose up against the nation of Israel. So it is very clearly referring to an attack against the nation of Israel. In verse 3, we see the goal of the attackers in the phrase, then they would have swallowed us up alive. Their goal was not just to defeat Israel, but literally to eliminate the nation of Israel, to where they would be no more on planet earth. At the end of verse 3, we learn what motivated the attack. We read, when their anger was kindled, or that could be translated burned against us. So their attackers suddenly came upon them like a raging fire that threatened the destruction of the nation. Three more pictures are then given to convey just how great Israel's danger had been on this occasion. In verses 4 and 5, their enemies are compared to a surging and raging river that threatened to drown them and sweep them away. The psalmist wrote, the waters would have engulfed us. The stream would have swept over our soul. Then the raging waters would have swept over our soul. Notice, again you have the thought of being destroyed suddenly and swiftly without leaving a trace. In verse 6, their attackers are alluded to as a ravenous wild beast who would have torn, apart, torn them apart with their teeth and eaten them up. Then in verse 7, the enemy is referred to as a fowler who trapped the nation as a bird in his snare with no way of escape. Now, although the backdrop to Psalm 124 is a grim, grim picture of despair and desperation, that bleak backdrop only serves to accentuate to magnify, to exalt the greatness of God to deliver His people and to acknowledge our absolute and total dependence on Him. The psalm opens with the repeated refrain of praise to God. Had it not been the Lord who was on our side, had it not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose against us, yes, then we would have been swallowed up alive. Then the waters would have engulfed us. Then the raging waters would have swept over our soul. Yes, we would have been torn by their teeth and eaten up. 
The the psalmist then cries out in praise in verses 6 and 8, blessed be the Lord. Blessed, blessed, blessed. You could, I mean, you can just hear the emotion, the, uh, the, the, the gratitude, the adoration. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us to be torn by their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the trapper. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, with that brief summary of the psalm, we're now going to as we've done with the previous psalms, connect Psalm 124 to its historical background, which you find there in your notes. So we'll just read through this and follow along in your notes. Psalm 124 is one of four psalms written by King David and selected by King Hezekiah to be part of the psalms of the degrees. As emphasized in previous messages, King Hezekiah arranged the 15 Psalms of the Degrees into five trios. Now, here's a review, and let's see if you can remember. You ought to be able to remember this by now. The first Psalm in each trio is speaking of trouble. That's right, trouble. The second Psalm always speaks of what? Trust in God. And then the third Psalm in each trio, uh, trio always speaks of? Triumph, thus the title for the series, Triumph Over Trouble Through Trust in God. Now, Psalm 124 is the second psalm in the second trio, which praises God for deliverance and then acknowledges absolute dependence and trust in God alone. Now, when David wrote the psalm, he was probably speaking of God's deliverance from the Philistines shortly after he became king. Just pause right there. Don't want to talk a lot about this, but uh, if you remember your biblical history, uh, the armies of Israel had been just absolutely crushed, devastated by the Philistines in a battle where King Saul, uh, Jonathan, uh, had been killed. Uh, After the death of King Saul and this horrendous defeat at the hand of the Philistines, uh, David, of course, eventually uh, takes his place on the throne. But at this point, the nation is extremely weak. Again, their military army has literally been decimated by the uh, Philistines. Uh, We're told that the Philistines hear that David is now the new king. And, of course, they're very familiar with David. Uh, he had killed uh, their champion, uh, Goliath. Uh, they, they knew uh, the m- wonderful warrior that he was, the wonderful and brilliant military strategist that he was. And so the last thing they wanted to do was for uh, David to get there on the throne, consolidate his power, and begin to, begin to grow and, and strengthen the, the nation. So while they were in a very compromised, weakened state, here come the Philistines. I mean... And they just flood into Israel, and they have one thing in mind, to kill David and to crush the nation. Uh, It talks about how David had to uh, hide away in in a stronghold. And it's a really magnificent story where he, he seeks God, and he says, basically, God, what should I do? Should we go out and attack? I mean, you, you, you give the instructions because uh, this host is too great for us to, uh, to defeat in our own power. 
God gives him directions, gives him a miraculous victory. The Philistines attack a second time, another miraculous victory. So probably when Psalm 124 was originally written by David, that's what he's referring to, this wonderful deliverance that God gave them over the Philistines at the very uh, uh, beginning of his reign as, as king. Now, going back to your sermon notes, you notice Hezekiah, he borrowed David's psalm. And it's easy to see why, because it not, it not only perfectly expressed Hezekiah's gratitude to the Lord for his miraculous deliverance from the Assyrian invasion, but also declared Hezekiah's confidence in the Lord for all future times of trial. Now, for the sake of our guest, just to make sure we're all up to speed, uh, let's remind ourselves this was a miraculous deliverance. Uh, remember, the uh, Assyrians at that time were the greatest military power on the face of the earth, probably the most wicked, most evil, bloodthirsty people as well. And here they come, and uh, their, their intent on uh, overthrowing uh, not just Jerusalem, but the entire nation of Judah. And they uh, put the city under uh, siege. And, uh, and it, this is just a force that uh, little Judah would not be able to uh, cope with. We uh, won't go into details. We've already done that in previous messages. But it's the Hezekiah and the people put their trust in, on God. God sends in, in the angel of the Lord into the camp of the Assyrians. And in a single night kills 185,000 of their soldiers. And, uh, and so they return uh, to Assyria uh, in defeat, where then King Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrians, is killed by his, his, own, his own sons. So Hezekiah is borrowing this psalm of David, as you can see, because it does so well express the gratitude he was feeling in his heart for what God had done for them. And it also gives Hezekiah an opportunity to declare his confidence in the Lord for all future times of trial. So not only praising him for what he did, but, give it, but expressing that confidence going forward that God will continue to deliver his people. Now look at the next paragraph in your notes, still looking at the historical background. Here's a very interesting observation related to the statement in verse 7. Our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the trapper. The British Museum in London, this very day, contains King Sennacherib's, the Assyrian king, his own written record of the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem. And in that record, he boasts that he shut Hezekiah in his royal city like a caged bird, and that Hezekiah was overwhelmed by the fear of the brightness of my lordship. He, of course, does not record God's destruction of his army or, Hezekiah, or the fact that Hezekiah escaped from the cage. So Psalm 124, to sum it up, is the testimony of believers who find themselves trapped. But then, not by their own doing, the snare has been broken. If our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth, the way the psalm closes. If that is true, how could God ever be defeated by a bird catcher's snare? And uh, that's the truth in this wonderful psalm. Now, turn over to the 
back seat on your notes and you look at the question that sort of thrust us in to the application of this psalm to our lives today. When trapped by God's enemies or when trapped by life's trials and you feel like there's no way of escape, what are you to do? Well, this psalm teaches us the same thing the Israelites had to do when they were faced with the Assyrian invasion. And the first thing is to place your dependence in God alone because He And we sung about it already this morning because He is for you. Place your dependence in God alone. Because if you are God's child, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, He is for you. As I mentioned in my prayer at the very beginning of this service, through redemption in Christ, we've been adopted into God's family. And I'll never get over this. I've said this before in this pulpit. I'll never get over the the fact that God loves me as much as he loves his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's just as committed to protect me as he was committed to protect Jesus or to provide for me as he was committed to provide for Jesus. Just as committed to glorify me that I might finish the work he's given me here on earth to do as he was committed to do the same for the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, we're to place our dependence in God alone because he is for us. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Had it not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say. Had it not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us. Now look at at what is actually a more accurate translation from the Hebrew text. And I I really like this. Had it not been Jehovah, He was for us, oh let Israel say. Had it not been Jehovah, he who was for us when men rose up against us. Isn't that precious? This, 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 this wonderful exclamation of praise that God had been uh, for them uh, when men rose up against them. A great cross-reference is Psalm 94, verses 17, 18, and 19. It says, If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have dwelt in the abode of silence. If I should say my foot has slipped, your loving kindness, O Lord, will hold me up. And then I love how it ends. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, and we all struggle with anxious thoughts, your consolations delight my soul. Let me raise a question. Why did God allow the Israelites to experience the terrifying trial of the Assyrian invasion? Very important question, because it relates to you and I as well. Why does God allow us to go through terrible hardships and difficulties? Well, we know in the case of the Israelites at this time, it was not because of sin. Matter of fact, and again, we looked at this, I think, in the very first message on this series. We're told in the biblical narrative, in 2 Chronicles 32.1, it says, after, this is referring to Hezekiah and the children of Judah. It says, after these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and besieged the fortified cities. 
Now, when it says, after these acts of faithfulness, it is referring to the national revival that was led by Hezekiah. When the people returned to God, when the people destroyed their idols, when worship was restored of Jehovah. Well, you say, well, man, that is an interesting way for God to reward revival with the invasion of the most wicked and powerful nation on planet Earth. But what we need to understand is this, and it's very important for us to understand this. Just because we gladly welcome God's truth into our lives, just because we begin to gain wonderful insight into God's truth, and even get very excited about what God is teaching us, that does not mean that God's truth has fully captured our hearts. See, often we mistake the notion of of knowing and understanding truth is that we're, we're sort of there spiritually. God says, oh, no. The issue is... Will you live this truth? Will you live this truth in the fire of affliction? Will you demonstrate your trust in me and my word? So what God does, and mark this down, especially if you're a new believer to understand this, God is going to give you truth. And it'll be wonderful truth that will excite you. But then right behind giving you that truth, he's going to allow your life to be invaded by hardships, by what appear to be very painful, difficult, impossible situations. And he does this. Here's why he does this. He does this to kick out from under you all the crutches that you're leaning on that so easily become substitutes for God. And he does this to teach us what? To lean on him alone. If I'm leaning on some other crutch, and it may be a, a, a good person, it may be my spouse, it may be a spiritual mentor, but if I'm leaning, if that's where I'm putting my trust, I'm not leaning on God alone, am I? And see what happens All of us, we sort of need our little security blankets. And we don't want to let them go. I'll tell you something. Jonathan is not here, our minister of education. For those that are guests, he's my son, eldest child. Jonathan had a security blanket. Remember that yellow, stinky blanket that he had? And, uh, And Jonathan just wouldn't give that thing up. And you know what Kathy started to do? She just started cutting it. She first sort of cut it in half, then again, and it ended up where he just had a little piece that he could cling on to. Uh, and, and, and finally, I think, what, he was 18 or 19 before he was able to give that? No, just, just no. What, four or five? I can't, four years old, Kathy said. She remembers. Four, four years old. But the point is, we, t- we tend to have our security blankets, which divides our hearts. And we're not leaning on God uh, we're not leaning on God uh, alone. See, although Hezekiah and God's people were growing in their faith, we also know from the biblical narrative they had not arrived. 
uh, we learn from the writings of the prophet Isaiah during this period of time that instead of trusting God alone for protection from the Assyrians, they struggled, and I mean they greatly struggled, with putting their trust in alliances with other nations, like Egypt. And this is something that Isaiah had to continually call them on the carpet for. No, don't look to other nations. Look to God, God alone. He is your Redeemer. He will be your Savior. He will be your Deliverer. And then we saw in an earlier message that when the Assyrians initially invaded, do you remember what Hezekiah did? What he initially did? He capitulated to the Assyrians in an attempt to try to appease them and buy them off. He literally gave them all the gold, all the silver in the temple and from the national treasuries. See, God desperately wants His children, not that God is ever desperate, but God passionately wants His children to stop looking horizontally for help. Whether it's to other people, or whether it's trusting in my own resources and wisdom, and He wants us to what? Look up to him vertically. Amen. Right? So when the hardship comes, when the trial comes, do you do this? Where can I get help? Or is your initial response to look up to God and to God alone? You know, did not we see this last Sunday in our study of Psalm 123? You remember how that psalm began? To thee, I what? Lift up my eyes, O thou who art enthroned in the heavens, the one who is sitting on the throne in control of all things. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, and as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look up to the Lord our God, until He be gracious to us. Amen. So what I'm saying in a nutshell is, God will use difficult circumstances to get you so low, you know, have no place to look but up. Amen. He'll use difficult circumstances, hardships, to get you so low, you have no place to Look but up. And he does this not because he hates you. It's because he loves you. And because he knows he's the true source of all joy and provision and protection. And when you get to that point where you are so low you have no place to look but up, God says, I have you now right where I need you. Because now your eyes are on me. And on me alone. God values your trust more than anything else. And there is no greater way, there is no greater way 
for any believer to worship God than to trust Him when everyone around you and the circumstances that surround you are telling you that you are foolish to do so. You know, as we've uh, talked about this before in previous messages, you have a choice. Just like King Hezekiah and the children of Judah had a choice. Again, we talked about their faith wavered initially. They, They struggled, but they eventually got to this point, and this is where God wants to get us. See, we have a choice. You have a choice. When difficulty hits, will you focus in fear on what appears to you to be the human impossibility of your circumstances, or will you focus in faith on the divine impossibility of God breaking His Word? That's the choice where every one of us are confronted with. And it's tough. I mean, think about King Hezekiah. I mean... They looked outside those walls, although they saw was tens and tens of thousands of Assyrians. They couldn't see God with their physical eyes. What they could see was those big, bad, mean, brutal Assyrians. But God wants to get us to the place where... In the spiritual eyes of our faith, we can see God. And we put our trust in Him instead of getting fearful about what we so easily can see and feel. Now, before moving on to the second point, let me leave you with one great New Testament cross-reference. You can turn there if you'd like in your Bibles, but if you're taking notes, please get this uh, down in your notes. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-9. through 9. Talking about your notes, I won't mention who. He's in the service today. I don't want to embarrass him. I didn't ask him if I would have permission to do this, but I was, uh, just want him to know how moved I was by this, and it's a, it's a great testimony. I was talking with one of our church members. I had a relative that was, uh, had a medical situation and just ministering there, and as we were talking, Suddenly, he just reads this out of his back pocket, and he says, hey, I want to show you something. And he brings this piece of paper, and it's just all folded up, and he begins to open up. And then, very, and then I was able to recognize, hey, that's the sermon notes. And you could tell, man, he had notes all over him. I mean, it, it, was, it was writing all over. It was red ink. I, re- I remember that. And he said, Brother Andy, I just want you to know. He said, I take these notes. And every day I go over these notes. I go over the scriptures, you know, asking God to give me grace to work this into my life. And then this is a guy that one of his areas of work is construction. He says, and then after I finish that set of notes, you know, because you're going to give me a a new set, uh, I'll take that. And in, in some construction, I put it in the wall, hoping that maybe 10, 20 years down the road, somebody will find that. (laughs) <laughs> and, and be ministered to. My point is, uh, I, I do pray. I really encourage you uh, uh, to use these notes. Not that they're my notes, but the reason I provide them for you 
is that you can take them. And I pray that you will incorporate them into your daily lives, your daily devotional, in terms of uh, uh, God working this truth into your heart and life. But 1 Peter 1, look how this so beautifully uh, dovetails into everything we've just been talking about. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 9. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Interesting statement. First, notice it says, it is necessary. It is necessary for you, for me, as children of God, to be distressed by various trials. And then he says, as we're stressed out in those trials, as we're struggling with them, we're to rejoice. Why? He gives us the answer. It's the very thing we've been talking about. Verse 7. So that, in order that, here's the reason, the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable. It's more precious to who? To God. That's what he's saying. He's saying rejoice when you're distressed by various trials. Why? Because you have the opportunity to demonstrate your faith in God, and that is precious to God. And then he goes on and he says that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though what? Tested by fire. See, your faith isn't real until it's been tested, till it's been proven. And it's demonstrated, yes, you are leaning on God. Yes, I am trusting God. I'm not getting eaten up with anxiety. I'm not focusing on the human impossibility. I'm focusing on the divine impossibility of God breaking His Word. And that's what gives me confidence and peace, even in this situation that I'm in right now. And he says, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying, I'm going to honor you for placing your trust in me. Because that is the best way for you to worship me, to honor me. And then I love this, verse 8. We just talked about this. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Obtaining is the outcome of your faith. What? The salvation of your souls. The deliverance. There's deliverance. As a result of faith and trust in God. Look at the second application to this psalm. Trust God to protect you from the evil intentions of the enemy and turn it for your spiritual good. Trust God to protect you from the evil intentions of the enemy and turn it for your spiritual good. Again, verses 3 and 5. See, if God had not been on our side, then they would have swallowed us up alive. That was the enemy's intent. The enemy's intent was not just to hurt Israel. They were to destroy Israel. They were to eliminate Israel, wipe them off the face of the earth. When their anger was kindled against us, then the waters would have engulfed us. The stream would have swept over our soul. Then the raging waters would have swept over our soul. Look at Psalm 56, verse 9. Again, another great cross-reference. David wrote, Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me, in God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God, I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid, what can man do to me? Faith 
is anchored in the sovereignty of God. Faith is anchored in the sovereignty of God. What I mean by that is this. God is for His child. He is for His child. And therefore, God will not allow anything to touch His child that He cannot transform and use as a tool for spiritual growth. The all-knowing, the all-powerful, sovereign God enthroned in the heavens loves you most and knows what is best for you. As we have seen in this present study with the Assyrian invasion of God's people, this does not mean that you will not be attacked by the enemy. This does not mean you will not suffer persecution, pain, and perplexity. This does not mean you are immune from sickness, sorrow, and loss, from wounds and betrayal. What it does mean is this, Romans 8, 28, all things, all things work together for what? Good, spiritual good, spiritual growth for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Romans 8, 31, what then shall we say to these things? What things? The all things in verse 28. If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? So as I encounter the all things in life, God's in control. As I encounter those all things, He's for me, and He's going to give me everything I need to cope. Everything I need to endure. Everything I need to know deliverance, to know victory. And in Romans 8, 34 and 36, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. And we conquer whether it's through a miraculous deliverance or just the sheer grace to endure the pain. And in the midst of it all, God is put on display and He's magnified and exalted. Bottom line... Bottom line, this is a battery. Let's say this battery represents you. Bottom line, you are in Christ. You're in His hand. Scripture tells us that Christ is in the Father. So for anything to get to your life, it has to first go through the Father and through the Son. And he's given you the ironclad guarantee that he will not let anything get through unless he knows it is ultimately for your spiritual benefit and good. It's God that determines the length of the trial. It's God that determines the intensity of the trial. And it's God who has promised in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13... That he will not allow you. He will not allow you. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. 
He knows where you are right now. He knows your vulnerabilities. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your limitations. And He will not allow you to be tempted beyond where you are right now and your ability to cope through His grace. I like the simple way the, the, the message paraphrases this verse. All you need to remember is that God will never let you down. He will never let you be pushed past your limit. He'll always be there to help you come through it. And folks, it even gets better. Not only all of that, but the Holy Spirit dwells inside you. You're in Christ's hand. Christ is in the Father. But then in you is the Holy Spirit to give you the power to deal whatever, with whatever the Father and the Son allow to get through to you. Wow. So trust God. You can trust God. You can trust God to protect you from the evil intentions of the enemy. And to turn it for your spiritual good. And before I move to the third point, let's be very, very honest for a moment. Let's, let's touch on this at least. Sometimes... Our worst enemy is not the Assyrians. All we got to do is look in the mirror. Sometimes the greatest pain is self-inflicted wounds. We've all known the pain of God's rod of discipline. But even there, even with the self-inflicted wounds... Even suffering God's correction and discipline and chastisement for the repentant child of God. God will forgive. God will heal. And then you know what God will do? He will use the scars from those self-inflicted wounds as testimony to others of God's grace in your life. Third truth. Praise God for His deliverance. Verses 6 and 7. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us to be torn by their teeth. Our soul is escaped as a bird out of the snare of the trapper. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Look at Psalm 118, 7 and 8. Again, a great cross-reference. The Lord is what? For me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Now, we can deal with this and make short order of it. But it's powerful and it's true. What is the greatest power in the universe outside of God himself? It's the devil. The greatest power in the universe outside of God himself is the devil. Hebrews 4 tells us the devil had the power of death. He used an instrument of execution, the cross, to bring death to the Lord Jesus. But because Jesus died on the cross, a sinless sacrifice for the sins of, the man, of man, the grave could not hold him. And he rose victorious over the devil, over sin, over death itself. And this is why we're told in Hebrews 4.14 that Jesus rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. 
As a result, we read in verse 15 that Jesus delivers those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Jesus transformed an instrument of execution, the cross, into an instrument of deliverance from the power of the devil, slavery to sin, and transformed death into a door that opens into all the glories of heaven. The point is this. If we have been delivered already from the greatest power in the universe outside of God, if Jesus has broken the snare of the devil and we have escaped, what? Can God not deliver us from? See, any other trial you may be experiencing pales in comparison to that. So we do not praise Him. Very important point, but I'm going to have to move on. We do not praise Him to get the deliverance. We praise Him because we've already been delivered. Look at the fourth and the last application. Rest in the Creator who is your preserver. Rest in the Creator who is your preserver. The psalm ends, verse 8, Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Have we not heard that before in this series? And we're going to actually hear it again in another psalms. We saw this in Psalm 121 too. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He repeats it here in Psalm 124. We saw this in Hezekiah's prayer for deliverance from the Assyrians. 2 Kings 19, verses 15 and 19. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Now, O Lord our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. In Psalm 33, 6, not in your notes, Psalm 33, 6, we are told, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. And then it goes on, it says, let all the earth Fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Why? Because He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood forth. Referring to creation of the heavens and earth. If God, by the mere power of His Word, spoke the heavens and earth into existence out of nothing, think about that a moment. If God, by the mere power of His Word, created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, why would we ever doubt God's ability to preserve us in times of trial? I think of what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 4 verse 20. With respect to the promise of God. He did not waver in unbelief. It's referring to Abraham here. He did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what he had promised, he, God, was able to perform. So when trapped by God's enemies or life's trials, with no way of escape, what are you to do? Place your dependence in God 
alone. Because He is for you. Trust God to protect you from the evil intentions of the enemy. And trust Him to turn it for your spiritual good. Praise God for His deliverance. And rest in your Creator who is your preserver. Bow with me in prayer. Father, I admit a much easier message to preach than to live. But Lord, we thank you that uh, you love us with a love that will never let us go, but a love that will never let us off. Uh, You're committed to completing and finishing the work you've begun in us. And part of that work is to teach us to trust, to trust in you, to lean on you and you alone. So, Lord, take this truth, burn it into our hearts, Lord, as we said already today, when you give us truth, right behind that truth comes an invasion of difficult circumstances, of hardships, to provide us the opportunity to live the truth. So, Lord, knowing that, we look to you for grace that you would grow us in our faith. And Lord, we acknowledge the ability to believe your promise is in us knowing the promiser, that you are trustworthy. So Lord, open our eyes to see, as the psalmist said, just how awesome you are, that we would stand in awe of you, your might, your power, your magnificence, your redeeming love. And that you would grow us in your grace and knowledge. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.